Welcome to Music Life Radio. I am your host, Dan Sauter. Music Life Radio is a free podcast available on iTunes and your interwebs at musicliferadio.com. It features interviews and stories about and related to music. Today on the program, we featured Robert Pilkey, author of Rock Music in American Culture, The Sounds of a Revolution. He talks about his book, which investigates rock music from a philosophical perspective. We discuss several of the concepts used in the book, including how a cultural revolution succeeds, and examine two prominent symbols of the revolution. Elvis as the negation of traditional values of the 50s, and the Beatles, which affirm the new social changes of the 60s. We also talked to Bob about his love of rock music, which spans early folk to modern metal. We discuss some of his favorite new artists, and talk about his other books, including his new science fiction alternative history, time travel, double first contact trilogy called A New Birth of Freedom. Bob is a retired professor of philosophy and the author of numerous scholarly articles and books. He lives in Claremont, California. Sit back and relax to another episode of Music Live Radio, this one entitled Rock Music in American Culture, featuring Robert Pilkey. Welcome to Music Life Radio. What I'd like to know is where did you grow up and what kind of music were you listening to as a child? What were your influences? What did your parents listen to? Oh, those many years ago. Uh, I uh, grew up in Baltimore and uh, I grew up in a family with a lot of musical people involved. Uh, my father played piano, mostly popular stuff, but he learned classical. Uh, I had an aunt who was a professional dancer uh, an aunt who was a professional opera singer, another one, an uncle who was a professional violinist in an orchestra, and uh, and again, a lot of musical people in my background, and the music that they played and so forth and preferred was classical. That's what I grew up with, classical music. Okay. I remember reading somewhere that you um, played piano for a while. When did you start taking lessons on the piano? Uh, when everybody else in the family was playing something, I said, well, I wanted to learn the piano, too, never realizing how difficult it was and how, to, how I'd have to practice every day. Uh, so that quickly became a very tiring uh, problem. So uh, I switched to the saxophone after quite a few years and loved that and played that all through elementary school, through uh, high school, through college. Even uh, I played for a couple of years in a college band where I was teaching. So uh, I played for quite a while. Don't play it any longer, uh, although a friend of mine and I got together in his studio a couple of years ago, and we used to jam a bit, but uh, uh, no time anymore. <laughs> well, that must have been fun to get back together and, and jam with somebody. Yeah. yeah. Did alto and tenor. Okay. What kind of music were you generally playing? Jazz or rock or... Oh, we were doing rock with my friend. Uh, okay. He, he, uh, he was a rocker and recorded 145 back in his day, uh, surf band. But uh, no, we, did, we did rock, entirely rock. Little blues, little reggae, that type of stuff. So what did you do after high school? I know you mentioned college. I know you went to a seminary college. Was that first or did you do something before that? I went to the University of Maryland, regular four-year school. Okay. In ROTC. I was, I was in college from 60 to 64 and, and not knowing really what I wanted to do. I had an interest in a lot of things. Um, and one of them was uh, interested in, in the study of religion and uh, not the practice of it, but the study of it. And, uh, and I had considered going to graduate school, but with my, my raging C average, I wasn't going to go anywhere. <laughs> uh, so it looked like I, since I had to go into the military, I would go through ROTC. And in the midst of uh, my second year in advanced ROTC, 
the uh, air science instructor gave us a quiz, and I'll never forget this quiz. Uh, though our whole class failed. It was just simply an identification of persons, places, and things, and so forth. We'd never heard of any of them. And uh, one of them was Ho Chi Minh. Another was Saigon, Vietnam, uh, Viet Cong. <laughs> I can see where that's going. <laughs> D&B and Fu, things like that. Hadn't heard of any of this stuff. And then when he collected all the papers and noticed that we hadn't gotten any of them right, he uh, said, well, you're going to have to learn them because you're going to be there in two years. Well, and, he, and the way he said that, uh, and I later came to know him pretty well because he happened to be the uncle of the woman that I married. <laughs> uh, he uh, had some real misgivings about that war, and he was trying to communicate it to us as, as best he could. And he got through to us, I think, pretty well. So. I began the process of dropping out of uh, ROTC, and my alternate plan, since I couldn't make it right in the graduate school, was to go to a seminary and study religion there. Again, not to practice it, but to study it. And I knew, of course, full well, going to a seminary was going to put me on the, uh, the, the list of not to, be, to, not to be drafted. I was going to be deferred. Um, so, I, and I didn't mind that at all. So, and I, with my questions about the war... So it, it worked out fairly well. I, I spent three years in seminary, got a seminary degree, an academic degree, uh, not ordained, of course. Uh, they frown on atheists in the pulpit. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but I did pick up a lot of information that I later made use of in, in my writing. In fact, that's where I read Rudolf Otto, Mircea Eliade, Paul Tillich, uh, contemporary theologians and uh, uh, and uh, philosophers of religion. This is what I was looking for. So uh, it was a win-win kind of situation. And uh, I didn't realize again at, at the time, but uh, that was going to become extremely useful when I did this book on rock and roll. Oh, certainly, yeah. A after that, I was able to go to graduate school because I improved my grades just a tad. <laughs> <laughs> And I uh, went to uh, graduate school here in California, Claremont Graduate School. Oh, where you live right now then, huh? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And have you been living out there ever since, the grad oh, school? No, I, 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 I took a teaching job. I went uh, back to uh, Virginia, and there was a little uh, beginning university struggling in northern Virginia there, which uh, nobody knew about. So uh, there were two of us applying for a job, and I got it. It was uh, George Mason University. So... I taught there for about uh, 12 years, I guess it was. Do you have any memorable stories from <laughs> your teaching career? The major, uh, I guess the, uh, the underlying essence of my teaching career was my, my uh, opposition with the administration. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, uh, I had my own theory about the nature of teaching and so forth, and uh, it didn't uh, correspond with uh, the accepted procedures. Uh, so I would always get, in fact, I probably have the, the history for having getting the, the longest and the most uh, needs to improve evaluations <laughs> in the history of education. Uh. <laughs> I can't remember of a, a single semester where I wasn't, uh, where I was uh, given, uh, 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 I guess, sort of satisfactory. But, um, but I got promoted. I eventually wound up a full professor. So, uh, so uh, it didn't seem to block my career, so to speak. And uh, to be specific about the major cause of my, my disagreement, I had a firm belief that I think students should be able to redo their work as long as they want to, and I would just simply change their grades. And that meant even after they were finished with the course, and even after they graduated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, that caused some uh, stir wherever I, was, wherever I was teaching. That's a unique approach. I think I kind of like that idea, though, because we're always continually learning and improving. I think so. And, uh, and sometimes people don't learn at the same speed. Oh, definitely. They don't have the same interest at the same time. So. Yeah. Now, what exactly inspired you to become a teacher? Uh, well, uh, like I mentioned, uh, I, I went to graduate school, or I, I was in seminary, that without a, a profession after that, I wasn't going to become a minister, and uh, having absolutely no uh, discernible skills to do anything, I went to graduate school, and 
the only thing you can do after graduate school, after taking, you know, getting your degree in philosophy, is teach. Uh, there are no jobs for philosophers on, on, on the wharf or anything like that. That's true. So it was out of necessity more uh, than uh, a... I, it was, uh, I realized that going to graduate school condemned me to teaching. Uh, okay. so that was it. And I, I, I don't want to give you the impression that I hated it. Uh, I, I did uh, love it a, a good bit. Exactly. So um, when did you start becoming a writer? I know, I know you must have written, obviously, you know, papers all through graduate school and whatnot. Uh, but when did you start writing professionally? Well... Uh, your first question was, when did I start writing? That's um, true. Yeah, let's back up. I'm going to answer that one. Okay. <laughs> uh, and then we'll get to the professional thing. I wrote my first book when I was in, I think, the fifth grade. <laughs> uh, it was uh, uh, an alternate history, which I didn't realize at the time. Um, it was, uh, I called it White Cloud. It was a, it was a story of, a, of an Indian chief born in, uh, I guess, the, in the Western tribes, who uh, uh, was, had the ability to unite all the Native American tribes on the continent and to resist the European invaders. It was, you know, obviously an alternate history. I didn't know that, but, uh, but I liked the story. In fact, uh, I liked it so much that I got to the end of the, end of the book in three pages. <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, three pages long, one paragraph, and I think single-spaced, you know, from what I recall. Well, certainly a higher uh, concept than uh, most fifth graders would be <laughs> <laughs> writing about. <laughs> it took me a while to do it, too, because I had to try to type, too. And that uh -huh. was, but, uh, and, but I periodically wrote throughout school. Uh, and, uh, I wrote journals and things like that. I even took some creative writing classes in college, uh, and I liked those classes, and uh, after a while, I you know every when, whenever I got a chance in the midst of teaching or during the, a semester break or something like that, I try a short story, or a couple of short stories. A couple of them were published, and uh, but again, not really, uh, not really world circulated throughout circulated throughout the world. Mm -hmm. uh, and a few of the little writings that I did later on, I did some newspaper articles. Uh, restaurant reviews, actually uh, happy hour reviews, and uh, a few minor, minor uh, movie reviews. I got paid for those kinds of things, too. So I, I did a little bit of bit writing uh, while I was teaching. What was the time frame when you were first earning money as a writer? Well, I got paid for the articles that I, I, was, uh, I was teaching at the time. And in fact, I, I was, yeah, I was probably out here in California, but uh, I'd come back to California about in the, the, the early 80s, I think. So I, while I was doing some part-time teaching to get to make some money, I also tried my hand at a little freelance writing. Well, what inspired you to move back to uh, California? Well, I was in Virginia. I had uh, gotten promoted to associate professor. I had tenure. And I realized that I was going to have to be there for the rest of my life in Virginia. Mm -hmm. And now I... I, my, some of my best friends are still there, from, but mm -hmm. I didn't want to just be there for the rest of my life. I, I knew I wanted to eventually write, and uh, I knew I didn't want to live the rest of my life writing Virginia, even though it's close to home and that kind of stuff. I, I wanted to go back to California. I felt the atmosphere out here was more conducive to me, to my writing, um, to just simply to my lifestyle. So uh, my wife at the time and I decided to pick up, quit our jobs, and just move back to California with no job or place to live out here. <laughs> <laughs> Adventurous spirit. So you moved to Claremont, California and uh, started writing, you know, writing books. And at some point in 1986, that's when you wrote Rock Music in American Culture, the first edition. Right. Well, actually, it began the book um, before moving out here. It was okay. a... Uh, just at near the end of my, my, my teaching tenure or career at uh, George Mason, uh, and I, uh, I finished up uh, the book, actually the manuscript in, in, uh, in Virginia, sent it out to a publisher, and, and actually the first publisher I sent it to accepted it, um, which I thought was kind of unusual. But uh, it, it worked out pretty good for me, since that's what got me my, uh, my, my promotion to associate professor. 
but uh, I didn't finish the book yet. It was the, uh, the, it wasn't published back there. So when I moved back out here, went through the process of completing the process of public of getting it ready for publication and working with the publisher to get it actually all in in print. So it came out, uh, I guess, about a year or two, a couple years after I moved back out here. And why did you write the book? Ah, that's uh, that goes back to the uh, my my early my early years again. Um, when I uh, uh, again was, I told you my family was was heavily imbued with the classical music, mm-hmm. and uh, they would frequently talk about the popular music of the day, and I would overhear them, of course, in talking about this. What they didn't know was that uh, I was at that time, you know, covertly listening to some of this. Uh, <laughs> This rock music, or not, it wasn't called rock music then, but I would listen to it uh, in my bedroom under the covers. Because uh, I, I used to listen to the radio at night. I'd, I'd listen to old TV situation, or old radio situation comedies like Fibber McGee and Molly and The Great Gildersleeve, uh, shows I'm sure you're quite familiar with. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but every once in a while, I'd, I'd look for something else. And after a while, I had to because the little dial broke off. So I had to twist it around and uh-huh. didn't know where I was looking. And at Baltimore at that time, there were about two stations that, that played blues. And I would stumble onto them every once in a while. And they'd be doing blues and R&B. And some of the songs that they were, were playing, I knew my parents would not want me to listen to. <laughs> uh, I'm pretty sure I remember uh, distinctly listening to 60 Minute Man. Uh, and uh, that's uh, pretty explicitly sexual. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's not the kind of stuff that my family wanted me to be doing. They wanted me to follow in the, in the classical music line. And don't get me wrong, I did like some classical music, still do. But, uh, but this stuff hit me in all sorts of places where I wasn't expecting to get hit. And uh, my reaction, you know, I, when, I, when they were talking about some of this music, and I think the stimulus for this thing, that, that my consciousness changing there, was, was the movie uh, uh, Blackboard Jungle. Because Rock Around the Clock was the theme for the movie. Mm-hmm. And I remember my parents and my, my rel- older relatives talking about this, this song. And, they, uh, they, and I remember my uncle picked up his violin and says, this is just simply 12-bar blues, mm-hmm. um, disparagingly. So <laughs> I ran off a couple riffs of uh, blues on, on the uh, violin. I thought that was pretty good, actually. <laughs> Uh, but he was just trying to show it wasn't really sophisticated music, you know, not like what we were supposed to be doing. Oh, sure. And I could tell they didn't like this stuff at all. And I knew part of the component of this was, was the fact that this was black music or Negro music or at that time race music. And uh, I knew that was a problem. But there was something else, too. Uh, mm-hmm. It wasn't that they didn't just they just didn't like it. They were a little bit of afraid of it. That's what caught my interest. What is it about this, this music that makes them afraid? And uh, that question stuck with me. Uh, what about this music? Is it they, people don't like it and they're afraid of it? So, uh, again, that was at the back of my mind um, since that time. Now, when I went to, uh, to a seminary and picked up, uh, you know, uh, some of these philosophical thinkers about religion, uh, that was in my mind also. And uh, just sort of laying dormant there for a while. In the late 70s, uh, late 70s, uh, uh, I was watching a, uh, a PBS type of uh, pledge drive, and they were showing a film um, uh, called uh, Don't Knock the Rock. That wasn't the movie. It was a it was a video from uh, Britain, who said, uh, which was filmed, I think, in 64. And it had Little Richard, Jerry Lewis, Gene Vincent, uh, uh, the animals, um, a great kinescope. I have since been able to find that and buy it. So I've kept that. One of the things that I watch rather regularly. <laughs> but uh, I remember there's this one scene where Jerry Lee Lewis is playing, I think, um, uh, uh, all shook up um, 
and uh, or no, no whole lot of shaking. That's what he's doing. And uh, he's um, uh, and he's playing it over and over again, and the audience is gradually creeping on stage <laughs> until they surround the piano. And they're touching him with their hands and feeling his hair and things like this. And he's still playing his music. And then, and, and, he, and the song ends, but he keeps playing it over and over again. And he gets on top of the piano and starts taking off his jacket and his tie and things like that. And they're all f- reaching for him, touching his legs and things like that. And suddenly it occurred to me, this is what Rudolf Otto is talking about when he's talking about this, the religious experience. Um, so I, that time, I, when I saw that, I connected this notion of religion with rock and roll. And I said, that's one way to understand what's happening here. And then uh, you bring in the whole panoply of ideas associated with religion, ch- people ch- uh, converting, people con- uh, converting other people, uh, proselytizing, um, fundamental change of values involved with that. Uh, so a whole bunch of things uh, came together then. That's when I decided to write the book because I had something to say then. Yeah, I see your theme building right there. I'm going to skip ahead. I have a question here that I want to sure. ask about the second edition and, you know, what the update is. But I, I think I want to save that for later. <clears throat> and you're already starting to allude on this. And, you know, reading your book, you mentioned fear. I, I remember in the chapter about Elvis, you talk about dread. Yes. Uh, and, uh, and you were kind of getting to my next question anyway, which is why is music such a powerful catalyst for change? Can you summarize just a few themes on why? Yeah, let me uh, let, let me go back up again a little bit on this. Um, uh, this is something I picked up in college, actually. Plato uh, wrote this book called The Republic, which is his ideal society. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and he had a place for everything in it. Everyone should do certain things and, and study certain things in the, in the academy, including the arts. But he was particularly worried about music. Uh, he was worried about art, but he was worried about music in particular because uh, among the arts, it's not easily controlled. Um, when people make music, when they, when, uh, when they perform music, when they write music, their, their creative efforts are not uh, something that, that, that can be easily man- manufactured or, or directed by other people. And uh, so it's kind of free. Uh, inherently a, a free act to create music, even more than the other arts. Well, uh, if you put this music, or if music is created by people who are uh, dissatisfied or disturbed or angry in the first place, that music is going to be used to express their anger or dissatisfaction. And that's precisely what happened in the American setting, in uh the late 40s, the early 50s, and so forth. You have people who are using or creating music to express their dissatisfaction and their 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 uh, unrest, and that becomes a catalyst to change. It's not music itself that is always a catalyst of change. It's in the hands of certain people or in the minds of certain people at certain occasions and certain places and times. Music is a uh, grows out of a particular cultural setting and. This particular music, rock music, came out of a particular sec- um, setting in particular culture at a particular time and place in America. Um, and when you couple that with the influence of uh, the various new media that were coming into play, the electronic media, um, then uh, all sorts of other factors come into play to propagate this. So the catalyst for change then becomes uh, an enormously powerful uh, factor. When you put, when you boil all these things together, at least that's the way I see it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very much so. And this kind of ties right in with it. You just started talking about different media. Can you explain the medium is the message concept and how that applies to your book? In I'll the- do my, I'll do my best. Okay. <laughs> if if you're, if you're familiar familiar at all with Marshall McLuhan in in the book, it's notoriously ambiguous. Um, it's provocative as hell. Uh, but and that's why it's so was so popular and so influential. But nobody reads the book and understands it the exact same way as anybody else. You, mm-hmm. know, you have to sort of supply your own understanding to what's going on. In a way, I I kind of think maybe he diabolically <laughs> set it up that way. <laughs> uh, 
But so everybody has their own take on it. But basically, the the idea is um, when you use uh, when you express an idea in some way, you, uh, you use some medium to do it. It could be just simply a, a megaphone or or just simply your voice. But uh, when you use the electronic media, um, then uh, the media, the various media, the different media have some impact on how that message is received and what that message, what effect that message will have. Uh, it's not just simply the content of what you're saying, it's how you're saying it and how it's expressed through these, through these particular media. Um, and uh, the one that I did, in, uh, the ones that I dealt with in the first book uh, were uh, radio, film, uh, records, and uh, television. Uh, the major electronic media at the time. But since then, of course, we have something called the Internet and the Web, which has developed. Uh, that's the major fundamental uh, uh, addition to the book, in addition to updating things. That's, uh, that, that had to be put in the book. But, um, for example, um, when, you, uh, when you talk about music coming through the radio, um, not just the, we just didn't just simply listen to the music, and we're all listening to the words and the sounds and so forth. Uh, we were all listening to this music on a radio station, and it was not any radio station uh, in Baltimore. There were two radio stations that played this music, um, and uh, and not the other ones. The, ma- the major stations played you know, pop music, regular standard pop music and standards. Uh, uh, but we re- we uh, we watched uh, listened to the radio in these particular stations, and there were alliances and groups set up. You know, we we, we listened to this station, they listened to that station, um, and playing the same kinds of things. But we just liked the DJs, oh, so yeah. a community was created, which uh, uh, which didn't exist before, and that was the impact of the. The, the side effect of this medium, radio, radio. That's what, McLu- that's what McLuhan is talking about, basically, that there are certain side effects and uh, uh, subtle uh, effects that take place when you use a particular medium, when you use another medium, other things take place. And so there's a message in the medium itself. So what I tried to do was to sort of play around with that same idea uh, with rock and roll, uh, with, with records, with uh, uh, in creating a, 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 a sanctuary in the record stewards, sort of like a parallel to a church setting. Mm-hmm. So the, the holy places are not not churches or synagogues or temples. They are record stores for a while. So that's where you went to do your, in a sense, uh, you get in touch with the ultimate in some way. With television. Uh, what happens is that uh, it's in your home. Again, regardless of what's on television, what, who's on television, they're in your home. They're your guests. They're part of your, your, your friends and family now because they're in your home. So when, uh, when Ricky Nelson uh, does his, uh, his version of rock and roll on, on the Ozzy and Harriet show, um, oh, not only was he welcome in our home doing rock and roll, he was also bringing Elvis in too, because that's who he's—that's who he's mimicking. So sure. Elvis comes into our home. So the effect of television is that this music and rock and roll is now in our home. It's not out there. So I played around with that type of thing with the medium and the message idea. Now, if I remember correctly, you mentioned the radio being more of a hot medium and uh, yeah. TV being cool. Can you describe that? Now, the way it's it's typically done uh, with with and ev- almost everybody does this uh, example uh, is uh, they go back to the Nixon Kennedy debates in 1960, and those people who uh, listened to the debates on radio clearly thought that Nixon won the debates, and those people who watched the debates on television uh, all pretty much agreed that Kennedy won the debates. Mm-hmm. It's not what they said or they had no, because they both heard the same things. It's just that the type of personality that Nixon had, his style of speaking and so forth, um, came across better uh, in a, his, he's more strident in his making his arguments, uh, came across better on the radio. 
uh, and it's and the radio in in a radio medium, you have to be more animated and more forceful. Um, on television, you don't have to do that. You're much more relaxed and calm. You can't do a, a, a television personality on the radio, and you can't do a radio personality on television and have it work. So uh, that's what McLuhan was saying about uh, about the hot and cool. Uh, electronic media, by and large, are cool. The more electronic they are, the cooler they are. And uh, the more literal or verbal uh, the, me the medium, uh, like radio, uh, the hotter it is. It requires more, uh, it requires you to, to force yourself, to, to present yourself forcefully uh, when you're making your case. And uh, what happens is that with radio, you don't get quite as involved with the people because you're being, you know, almost attacked. That's that's too strong. But uh, mm -hmm. so you're the the, the the message is coming across quite strong. On television, it's a much more subtle type of thing. You're invited into and help or, uh, help understand the message as it's coming across. You don't because uh, they're not uh, you're not preaching to you, so to speak. So, uh, uh, again, uh, that's the typical explanation or the example that's used to explain hot and cold. But to be totally honest, where McLuhan talks about hot and cold throughout, it seems like, you know, in half the time he's contradicting himself <laughs> or, or taking back what he said. <laughs> uh, you just sort of have to play with what, what is there. And uh, it, uh, it's a fun book to get through. <laughs> But what other techniques or principles of philosophy did you apply in this book? Well, to say, I, I use another, uh, uh, a couple other folks too. Let's see, well, particularly Paul Tillich, uh, one of the major contemporary uh, Protestant theologians. And he was a, a, a major factor in my education at the, at the seminary. We read quite a bit of Tillich. Uh, we also read quite a bit of uh, Martin Buber, uh, a Jewish theologian, and uh, and and various other. We have read Marshall McLuhan at mm -hmm. seminary, um, but uh, Tillich, uh, again, I don't I don't buy his theology and his underlying metaphysics, but he came up with a notion of symbols, uh, which and again, that's another thing that came into place when I was writing the book. Um, in any kind of movement or revolution, there are going to be symbols. There are going to be symbolic ideas, symbol, symbolic people, and persons, and so forth, uh, which are going to, to point the way uh, of the, the changing times, the new values. And uh, to me, uh, the, the, the people who are most symbolic of the two dimensions of a cultural revolution, that which negates the past and that which affirms something for the future. Um, Elvis does the negation part, uh, uh, and everybody seems to think that that's what Elvis did, uh, that he somehow attacked the, the, the fundamental values. Not that he knew what he was doing or anything like that, but in his very person, uh, the way he presented himself, his medium, the medium of Elvis and his message, Mm -hmm. um, attacked uh, traditional values of sex, religion, race. Uh, again, not that he was consciously doing this, but that's the effect that he had. And uh, I don't think uh, anybody who is, uh, does it any or has done it any better. I think that that he's become a symbol of that. Um, and the same in the, for the affirming a new set of values, something uh, something different, a change. Uh, and uh, I, I can't think of a, another group that does this any better than the Beatles. And so I looked at the two of them through Tillich's understanding of symbols and took, you know, his uh, various criteria for, for valid symbols and justifiable symbols, authentic symbols, and, uh, and uh, ran them through my little test. Of course, I, I'm arguing for it. So, <laughs> so uh, sure. Tillich seems to support the idea. That, uh, you know, he's, a, he's a handy way of looking at Elvis as a symbol and a handy way of looking at the Beatles as a symbol also. So, uh, yeah, I, uh, I found it extremely useful, Paul uh, Tillich. Then, then there's the, uh, the notion of, uh, of Thomas Kuhn's uh, uh, structure of scientific revolutions. 
another extremely influential book. Uh, and what he's talking about is uh, how, uh, how uh, fundamental changes take place in science. But it's just as easy to see how uh, he can talk about fundamental ch changes taking in culture um, and his ideas of a paradigm shift. In fact, I think probably that phrase, paradigm shift, uh, comes from uh, Thomas Kuhn's book. So I made use of his notions of change. Uh, to, to sort of uh, characterize what happens in a cultural revolution. That's what happens, you know, the, the, a cultural revolution is, is, a, is a questions the traditional ultimate set of values and seeks to replace them with another set of values, which are contrary. Mm -hmm. and, and Thomas Kuhn's paradigm shift does a pretty good job of you know, conceptualizing that. And... Uh, I used a few other people, too, a bit when talking about cultural revolutions, like Herbert Marcuse, I used him a lot. He was a, a Marxist theorist in California in the, in the 60s. <laughs> Herbert Marcuse uh, had a whole series of, of, uh, of notions about cultural revolutions because he argued that we were in one also. And uh, he talks about the inevitability of a counter-revolution and a resurgence of the new revolution and so forth, uh, of the new revolution, and a, co a constant battle between the, new, the old forces and the new forces, uh, with one uh, uh, succeeding and then being replaced and so forth and challenged. Uh, but that's how revolutions take place, with a combat back and forth. Now, my next question, we already kind of, talked about and I think uh, how does a cultural revolution succeed you mentioned a paradigm shift I guess when this paradigm shift happens that that's kind of a measure would you have any other comments yeah, on that there's another way to look at that too um, and that, that may go into another one of the questions you may have had in mind were uh, the notion of uh, the Soviet Union coming to an end <laughs> oh, certainly mm -hmm. uh, uh, a cultural revolution succeeds when uh, uh, this could sound overly simple but when you can pass on your ideals to the next generation. Uh, when they adopt them, when they buy into the revolution, then you've succeeded. You've succeeded for two generations. And then if they then successfully defend the, uh, themselves against the, the counter-revolution and carry on and their generation follows and with the same with the cultural revolution, uh, it is a process of succeeding. You won't know for a long time. Cultural revolutions take hundreds of years. Oh, certainly. I, I know we're in the midst of one right now. <laughs> yes, we are. Obviously, it's <laughs> apparent every day. <laughs> we have been. Uh-huh, yes. And it's going to go on. <laughs> yes. But you got you got to get it to the next generation. If you can do it to that first generation, then you know that it, it is transferable to the next generation mm. of your ideals can transfer. And, uh, and you know it can be done. And if these people, their next generation uh, buys into it, they'll be able to pass it on too because you know it can be done and you know they'll want to do it. Um, that's, that's how it succeeds, it, that it, it doesn't die. And that's exactly what didn't happen in the Soviet Union. Uh, they, theirs was a cultural revolution also. They, uh, they ended the, the uh, feudalism with the czar. Um, they, the negative part won, in a sense, but they didn't have very much to affirm. Uh, and uh, for their succeeding generations, they could maybe pass on the power, but they didn't pass on any ideals except totalitarianism. Yeah, exactly. Total control, and that didn't work. So while they're in the Soviet Union, while their next generation was supposed to be listening to lectures on Lenin, they were actually listening to rock and roll. <laughs> there was a large uh, black market in rock and roll records, 45s in particular. And again, the 45 was, was rather easy to smuggle into the Soviet Union. And uh, they did, and they copied it and uh, passed them around. It was a lively underground in listening to rock and roll. Then when the, when, uh, the uh, Radio Free Europe and all the other radio stations would, could be gotten in the Soviet Union, too. Uh, the, if the floodgates were open, people were listening to rock and roll all the time. And uh, even though it was, so to speak, forbidden, they couldn't forbid everybody doing it. And uh, we've now learned that a lot of people in the Soviet hierarchy were also listening to rock and roll. Yeah, that's funny. 
And so, uh, so when it came, when Gorbachev and, and Yeltsin finally realized that the, the, the younger generation wasn't buying into this at all, they realized the game was up. It was over. And Soviet Union collapsed. And uh, there was a, I, I think I mentioned, I did mention the book, obviously, but you may remember a book called Rock Around the Block that I used you know, to support this idea. And I wish I had used that title myself. It's such a great title. Yeah. E-L-O-C, Rock Around the Block, like the Soviet block. And, uh, and at, as if to confirm this, this thing, um, when uh, McCartney went over a couple years ago to do a concert at Red, in Red Square and another one in St. Petersburg, um, there was the one in St. Petersburg is really the superior concert, but, <laughs> but when he gets out on stage here, I mean, there's you know, the thousands of people are out in St. Petersburg. There's a giant banner that they, they unfurled for him to see. Thank you. <laughs> so it's a, it's a, it's a, it's hard to see how uh, revolutions in in process are, are proceeding, but as long as the next generation is taking it up. It's a good good bet that's going to succeed, and um, we know now that uh, uh, that our our youngsters <laughs> uh, are into this same music also. You know, I'm I'm an, uh, a previous generation of from Europe, <laughs> an older generation a bit, uh, and uh, my daughter obviously is into this, and her kids are into it. Um, in fact, I've got uh, two. Uh, two younger, very young uh, 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 grandchildren, and they both know pretty much all the Beatle catalog. <laughs> yeah, that's and they amazing. Elvis's Elvis's songs also. Uh-huh. What are some of the uh, recent bands, rock stars, or artists that you feel are making a significant contribution to the revolution? Uh, again, not consciously. I mean, it's just that you know this is what they're doing. Their 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 medium, and again, is their message. Not so much whether they're conscious of this, but I mean, I think uh, some of the big ones, of course, you know, uh, and uh, uh, Lady Gaga, I think, is phenomenal, uh, and uh, it's uh, she she has a, a way of ex- ex- exuding freedom in everything that she does. Uh, and that's one of the ultimate values and, and individuality. I mean, she personifies that. Um, she's impossible to place anywhere, uh, she, but she is actively doing something her, that's her own thing. And at the end, it's not so much that what she's doing is being, uh, we're going to emulate. It's the fact that she's doing something that she feels free to do, mm-hmm. unbound, unrestricted. Um, on the other hand, uh, Eminem. Uh, again, uh, I think phenomenally important person uh, who who personifies in his, his slim shady persona. He he personifies uh, a negation. This is somebody we hate, mm-hmm. and he wants us to hate him. And he knows, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and he does it so well too. Um, but it's it's a persona that he's got, and. Uh, there are all sorts of other ones too that that, that I think are significant because uh, they either uh, ca- carry a positive or an affirmative message of new values, or continue to attack the old. Um, Adele, I think, is affirmative. Uh, uh, Megadeth, I love Megadeth. I think. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> uh, they're uh, and they're they attack. Corn uh, yeah. does too, obviously. Not that. In fact. Uh, I'm just recently uh, uh, re, uh, re watching the series on, I guess it's on classic uh, MTV or something, of uh, the uh, classic VHS, I think, uh, Metal Evolution. It's a, it's a series. Same guy who did the, uh, the movie, uh, um, the Headbanger's Journey. Uh, fascinating stuff. And uh, there's, there's so much metal out there that I wasn't even aware of. <laughs> and I like it. I like a lot yeah. of it. Yeah. I've been I've been doing the the, the, the standard Zeppelin ACDC uh, um, Metallica type of thing, but boy, there's a lot of groups like I just recently uh, been listening to uh, Rammstein. So, oh yeah, <laughs> and uh, and it, it's an acquired taste, I suppose, in some way. But 
that 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 metal is is absolutely crucial to the cultural revolution. Mm-hmm. It's it's uh, it just simply attacks, uh, and uh, it's it's violent. It's, <laughs> it's uh, it 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 presents you know it, it negates something. It, it it says whatever whatever you are for, I'm against. <laughs> I'm going to destroy it. <laughs> so it's a but but yeah, I think a lot of groups, large major groups as well as small. Uh, uh, artists are, are, are doing the same kinds of things. I, I just recently uh, uh, discovered a group called the, the Heart and the Mind. You ever hear about them? I've heard the name, but I don't, I'm not familiar with their music. That's you know? okay. I mean, it's a, yeah. it's a, I, was, I was amazed at how much I really liked their stuff. And, and uh, I, I, I felt the affirmative part there with these guys. Mm-hmm. I, by the way, I, I, I listen to Jules Holland whenever I get a chance, uh, whenever he's on, and uh, Palladia. Oh, yeah. But uh, keep up with uh, waste my time <laughs> uh, as much as possible on this stuff. Uh, but uh, there's also if it's other little groups too. Uh, Mano Chow. Uh, I, I like the different cultural influence that Mano Chow brings in. Uh, and he's a he's big in, uh, in the Latin uh, countries. So uh, yeah, there's an awful lot. Another. Another group I just ran into, I just heard of. Uh, re- I've heard about them, but I just heard them right through the first time. Uh, Black Keys. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, to, to sort of correspond with White Stripes and so forth. <laughs> yeah, certainly. My next question is, uh, you know, how has the Cultural Revolution changed? And you kind of capture that throughout the book with the different mediums coming up. You know, and this this. Uh, you just talked about it with the metal. There's, you know, there's so many different metal bands. You know, there's a lot of acts that are becoming undescribable or uncategorizable. Oh um, yes, and I think that's one one element of it. What would you predict for the future? Can you, based on the history in the past, what would you see as something that may make a resurgence or impact this revolution in the future? Well, we're still. Uh, sort of wondering about the impact of the internet, but uh, I could, you could, it's already pretty obvious that, uh, that individuality, you know, our personal individuality is, is enhanced dramatically by, by uh, our ability to create our own, we're our own producers now. We can, we can produce our own album uh, in a sense. We're, uh, record stores are in a sense going out of business. Yeah. <laughs> um, and record producers are finding it hard to produce records when, when people buy things individually. We put together our own collection of music. Um, and uh, it, it, it's going to be, it's changing the way music is going to be presented. It, it already has. Um, a lot of people, like my daughter listens, I think it's Palladia, which is a, you know, a, a, an online radio station basically where you can program your own music and there's quite a few of them that you, you can do this with sure but uh, but uh, it, it uh, the the movement towards the acceptance of, of individuality and uh, and everybody is different which means that there are no real separations between people in some sense um, I tend to think that community isn't going to be enhanced individuality is enhanced and and freedom, personal freedoms, uh, increase, um, because again, the fundamental values have been successfully challenged, not destroyed, but successfully challenged. Certainly, concerning sex and race, um, mm-hmm. and and, and gender identity, we're 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 tearing down the walls again of, the, of that traditional set of values. So more freedom. More individuality, but you know, it's going to be a difficult process. It takes a while. Mm-hmm. This gets more to an emotional response. But what does music mean to you? Ah, oh. <laughs> um, life in some ways. <laughs> uh, I can't imagine living without it. But uh, it's. Uh, I mean, if you uh, there's there's a formal definition to do it. It's an art form for one thing. Uh, and uh, it's an organized, it's a patterned use of tones. And that's as bad as objective and as distant and as <laughs> obscure as you can get. But, 
But other than that, I mean, I'm not sure what to say other than the fact it's the way human beings express their innermost selves, I think. Um, I started off the book with uh, a guy named John uh, Hawking, uh, Hacking, uh, How Musical is Man? And, uh, and I liked a lot of his ideas, and they sort of supported what I was thinking and, and gave me some things to think about, that uh, every bit of music uh, it exists only in a cultural setting. Uh, and every culture has music, and um, it's all different. Uh, I uh, I was always surprised to find out when I talked with you know with my students and people you know about what I was doing uh, that you know that not everybody has the same tonal scale that we do you know, the eight eight and uh, or uh, with the, including the, the the black keys or the the, the, the half tones but was it eh, the thirteen tones or something like that. Um, including the half tones. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's some cultures have 12 tones, uh, which means their music sounds different. Um, but they all have music, and they all have tones, and they all organize them and arrange them in certain harmonic patterns, melodies, rhythms. Um, the same media are there. Um, the message might be a little bit different, but the, the, the music music is a medium. Um, and again, it grows out of, uh, I think, an individual's desire for, or, or human desire for freedom. It's the way we express our freedom. Well said. <laughs> yeah, I <laughs> wanted to. Sit down. <laughs> the, uh, I, I wanted to get into, I know you're a collector of concert films, and you already talked about Don't Knock the Rock. Are there other favorite films in your collection and why? Oh yeah. Well, again, keep in mind uh, when I talk about it, uh, I I love I love live music. Uh, I I've long since abandoned you know just simply putting on a record or a disc or anything like that, just listening to music. Mm-hmm. I want to see it too. I, I love the, the the performance. Now, there's some concerts that are you know structured, rehearsed, and so forth uh, that I really like. And I think probably the best one um, that I still go back to every once in a while. Uh, probably more often than I, than I should admit, <laughs> the last waltz. Um, it's the it's done in '79, I think it is. Uh, it's directed by Martin Scorsese, and I think that's a key thing when you have a really great director doing a concert film. Um, it's the it's the band's last concert together. Have you ever seen that? Uh, I have not seen it, but I know that that's a you know very popular one. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it, I, I'd I'd recommend it. <laughs> mm-hmm, yeah. Uh, but I go back to that every once in a while. Then there's one with uh, Jonathan De- uh, Jonathan Demi, I think, does the this one. Uh, it's a Talking Heads concert. Uh, Stop making sense. Yep. Mm-hmm. You know that one? Yeah, I've seen that one. Yeah, uh, and it's a very different kind of concert, uh, and it's just them. But you know the way he builds up uh, the music, uh, one layer at a time, starting with just simply a, a, a boombox, I think, on the stage. But uh, but then gradually each performer and instrument is added to it till you get to the entire group uh, and it's a, it's a massive massive idea but uh but there are other ones too uh, that are maybe less well organized uh, i speaking of some of the older ones uh, I'll, I'll still watch woodstock every once in a while uh, monterey pop uh, but oh another concert like this i forget who directed this one is a prince concert uh, sign of the times uh, I, I think he's he was a brilliant performer and musician, and uh, I, I I still put that on every once in a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there there are some of the old ones. But uh, as for new stuff now, I uh, when I see a concert or a live performance, I'll DVR it, keep it there until I can maybe find it, you know, to to get it to buy it. Mm-hmm. Just recently, I guess in the last year or so. Uh, uh, the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I think the 35th anniversary concerts, uh, they're priceless, I think. Um, but they're, of course, a, a look back. It's they're, they're the old generation looking at the, the new stuff and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, the recent, the last year's Grammys, uh, uh, I, I'd love to get a copy of that. Uh, I don't think it's available on, on disc or, or anything yet, but... Uh, uh, 2011 Grammys. Uh, some of the stuff in there is is uh, I think that's when um, um, 
Dr. Dre and Eminem did their thing with uh, I, I Need a Doctor uh, together. Just a fantastic performance. And I think there were some of the other ones on there too. And, and again, these are the, the collected uh, the collected performances of the Grammys. Uh, the, uh, God, I said, oh yeah, the, uh, the 25th uh, anniversary of Def Jam Records, they put on a concert too, just oh. last year. Uh, and uh, again, that was another uh, fantastic show too. I think uh, Jay-Z did a, and did a whole bunch of things with uh, Kanye West, I guess it was, yeah. But yeah, there's a, again, some fantastic stuff that's being done not so much in concert form in the way the older concerts are done, but they are concerts and they are pre prepared and pre performed. Um, and again, I DVR those things and watch them every once in a while. What other hobbies or interests do you enjoy? I'm a, uh, a cook. I love cooking. Oh, that's nice. I, uh, I do. Uh, it's one, it's an avocation. Uh, I cook all the meals in the house and <clears throat> watch all the cooking shows uh, and eat out as much as I possibly can. Uh, drink wine. <laughs> uh, I swim, however, you know, I, I do that. Uh, and ski. Where do you go for skiing? Uh, my brother lives in Colorado. We've been meeting every uh, year with him somewhere. We've gone to pretty much all the ones, all the resorts in Colorado, California, and, uh, if you open Whistler, Canada, so do it as much as possible, but not often. Yeah, I, I try to go about once a year skiing. I'd like to go more, but uh, I usually don't make it up there more than once a year, unfortunately. What else is on the horizon for you? I know you've you've got several other books out, and you're working on a an alternate history science fiction trilogy. Well, I'm in the midst of that. Yeah, you're that's in the midst of it. That's uh, I, the first book is published. Uh, the second book uh, has just been picked up, picked up by another publisher since my, uh, my original publisher was really pretty small and uh, didn't have the, uh, the support to keep going. So my contract was picked up by uh, Whiskey Creek Press, which I kind of like kind of like their name. But, uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, and they'll be doing the third book also. It's a trilogy. It's a, it's a uh, time travel, alternate history, double first contact science fiction trilogy <laughs> and it happened it is occurring during the civil war is that it correct takes place uh, initially during the battle of gettysburg battle of gettysburg yeah now, what is it what does double first contact mean i was glad glad you mentioned <laughs> by the way uh the, i the seminary that i went to was luth is a lutheran seminary at gettysburg oh. so I, I lived in gettysburg for three years oh nice uh Double first contact is when, you know, a lot of stories about contact with aliens is when the aliens of the highly advanced civilization come to us uh, and uh, they visited us and they, they are well known throughout the galaxy or whatever. But uh, chances are just as good that when we're first contacted, they'll be uh, our, they'll be, we'll be their first contact also. So, uh I have that little scenario, underlying scenario going on there too, that uh, it's the first time we've each met an alien species. And I have the plot set up to take place during the Battle of Gettysburg, the middle of bed, actually before the third day, before Pickett's Charge, uh, for reasons of the plot there. Mm. But uh, it, uh, when you're writing an alternate history like this, You've got to be able to satisfy the uh, the uh, the demands of your of your audience who are historians. You can't sure. do alternate <laughs> history without doing the real history first. But, yeah. So yeah, I'm enjoying that. Uh, that's uh, going to finish that trilogy and then go on to some other little science fiction things I've got in mind. Wow, that sounds like a fascinating book. And if it's anything like the uh, rock and roll book, I, I mean, I'll check it out. Hey. I, I'd, I'd appreciate that. <laughs> where can we go to uh, learn more about your work and find out where we can um, purchase your books? Well, there's also, uh, there's, there's my website, of course, but uh, I'm on Facebook too. I've got okay. three or four locations for, on Facebook, myself, myself as an author, and I got one, one thing for each one of my books, I think. <laughs> 
Yeah, I noticed you had a lot of web pages for <laughs> yes. reaching one of your books. What, what is the main, can you uh, just read off the main website for, for the listeners? Yeah, it's uh, the usual HTTP, www.robertgpilkey.com. R-O-B-E-R-T-G-P-I-E-L-K-E.com. Excellent. And then just type in your name on Facebook and that's how they'll find you? That's how they'll find me. All right. Do you have anything else you'd uh, like to mention or discuss or promote? Or? Boy, can't think of anything else. All, All right. right. Well, I've really enjoyed the, the time. I'm, thank you for allowing me to uh, interview you. I'm, this has been a great experience. Oh, me too. <laughs> All right. Do this often. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, Bob. Thanks for your time. Thank you. All right. You have a good evening. I'll see you around somewhere. All right. Sounds good. Thanks again to Robert Pilkey. Check out his book, A New Birth of Freedom, The Visitor. That's part one of his trilogy. And Rock Music in American Culture, The Sounds of a Revolution. Thanks again for checking out Music Live Radio. I'm Dan Sauter, and we'll catch you next time. <laughs>